Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. This week and in coming weeks, the Bubble Trouble team will turn our attention to the phrase du jour, the bait of all clickbaits, the mother of all bubbles, that is, the metaverse. I read something, Will, that McKinsey says it's going to be $5 trillion by 2030. More in a moment. We're going to keep it real and keep this deep dive going with the brilliant Eric Kress of Gossamer Consulting Group, an independent research boutique that provides investors and industry clients with primary research on console, mobile, and other related technology companies. He also runs a fantastic podcast covering everything in gaming called Deconstructor of Fun. Eric has 20 years of experience in the interactive industry and sell-side research, and he's with us today. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So, Eric, before we get going with the guest, we'd just like to give you the microphone to introduce yourself, you know, the nature of your work, but really important, how people are going to start following you after listening to this podcast. Sure. I think, you know, the unique part about my background is I've spent half my career in industry and half my career in uh, investment research. So I spent about seven years at EA and then two years at Kabam, where I was VP of corporate strategy, kind of got my PhD in free to play and mobile. Um, and then... The rest of my career has been spent at investment research. And so right now I run Gossamer Consulting and I have my investment research portfolio of 15 companies. I also do a corporate strategy for Warner for both mobile and console. And then I work for the biggest NFT slash blockchain company, Forte, as a consultant. And then I do the podcast for Deconstructor of Fun to keep me kind of frosty about what's going on. And I think that's the unique thing is that I can keep one foot in the gaming space on industry and then one foot in investment side. So many side hustles, it's an octagon. And then, by the way, the best way to reach me is on LinkedIn because I'm way too freaking old and neurotic for Twitter. I got to say, it's a damn good podcast as well. I, I'm hooked on the first listen. So you got a new subscriber. Um, we like to get experts like you to come on the show but really to check yourself and assume no prior knowledge amongst the audience. Metaverse, how do you spell that word? Can you chisel that down to 20 words and just tell me in a very short sentence what the metaverse is? I basically believe that the metaverse is a community of players that get together to play and socialize around interactive experience. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. Period. Here's Tom with the weather. We're done. Yeah. And in that definition, we are surrounded by metaverses right now. Like we don't, there is no ubiquitous metaverse. 
that's on the horizon. You have Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, FIFA, Madden, hell, even Slotomania and Candy Crush. Those could be considered metaverses of people getting together with interactive experience and socializing. I, I love it. You've scored better than any other guest to date, keeping this tight. I want to keep it tight and light. Tell me what the metaverse isn't in a simple sentence. Where's the confusion about what this M word actually is and is not? It is not Ready Player One and it is not Snow Crash. I just fundamentally don't think we are going to get there anytime soon, if ever, to be honest. Maybe in the next 20 years when I'm long retired and soiling <laughs> my diapers at that time. Wait, you never told your wife, don't worry, honey, this is just a simulation? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, yes, I wish I could. That'd be a great excuse for many of the terrible things I've done over the years. We spoke to Yoshio from IDG Consulting, who is fantastic. And we also had Ernest from Amaze VR on the show. And one theme which came from those two discussions was, can any one firm own the metaverse. And this is something Richard, you'll see steam come out of his ears when firms believe they have the right to win. And I've got the right to win the metaverse. Is it metaverse for one company to own or is it more like the internet, which is for all companies to share? I'm agreeing with Richard on this one, right? I think it is a collection of experiences. Like the assumption that there's one company that can build a metaverse that is compelling for everyone is ridiculous. We just know that that's not the case in interactive entertainment. These utopian predictions of the needs and wants of the consumer, they focus on this ideal perception of a metaverse that caters to everyone. That just doesn't seem realistic to me. We've always developed content for different types of consumers. I think that will continue to be the case for whatever this quote unquote metaverse will become. And, and Roblox is a great example of that. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent on Roblox, but Roblox is having challenges because of just this. They are good for one segment of the population, kids, six to eight to 10 year old mm -hmm. kids, basically. That's where they cater. They are trying to move up demo and they're trying to move geo <laughs> and it's not working, right? Not working at all. And we're seeing that happen real time. They cannot grow in 2022 because they cannot grow demo or geo. And this has been a challenge for publishing on mobile free to play forever, trying to expand outside of geographic locations. And the one example I used that really resonated with my clients last year who went short on Roblox was that culturally, it, it is unacceptable in many countries in this world to give money to a six-year-old to play a interactive experience online. You can't do it in Japan, you can't do it in Korea, Eastern Europe, the Norwegian countries. Do you expect to monetize an audience which culturally does not accept that? Or their strategy to go into China. It's ridiculous. They are legislating against kids playing games. That's interesting. Bringing it back to the metaverse, it's like you can't build an experience for everybody. Every country is different. Every demo is different. The taste of the consumer is different. So when Andreessen and these McKenzie guys are coming out there with these lofty predictions, they're really talking about the consumer. They're talking about a theory that has nothing to do with the actual consumer. And so this is what drives me insane about lots of these predictions. I'm feeling that. If I can just toss in one quick question before going to Richard, but just when you talk about Roblox maybe overplaying their hands, do you think the company formerly known as Facebook has overplayed its hand as well? A hundred percent. They're not even content creators. At least the guys at Roblox know what they're doing in terms of building content and tools and getting the right people to make the games that are compelling to that audience. Facebook is just flying blind right now, and they're shelling tons of money onto the tech, and then they're buying lots of smaller teams. 
but they don't have the killer experience that's going to really compel a broader user base to get engaged. They're not Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo and, and building experiences for that particular audience. And again, the, the one thing, I, and I'll go into it a little bit later, is that the consoles have been optimized against 18 to 44-year-old males since inception. Like the Wii was a little bit of a, a variation on that. But for the most part, that is the audience that they've been catering to for 30 years. They know exactly how to cater to that audience. How is someone like Facebook going to even come close to appealing to that audience with their content? They're not. It's never going to happen. And that's why Google Stadia fails miserably. Apple Arcade is a ridiculous thing that they built there. Like tech companies that think that they can actually appeal to a broad audience and interactive are just kidding themselves, you know, at, at the end of the day. It's just a different audience. That's a fascinating point. You know, one of the things we've talked about before in this podcast is how most great companies have one big idea and finding a second one is incredibly difficult. And something else I've seen with investors time and time again is extrapolating upper middle class behavior to the mass market. Hey, I can afford a $2,000 Peloton and $30 a month for subscriptions. Everybody should be doing that. What is the moth-like attraction to flame that draws people into this? Is it the corporate arrogance that allows some of these companies to claim the right to win in these spaces where they haven't been present for 30 years? Do they think they can invent a better mousetrap? Do they extrapolate from their own interests or their own fascinations with technologies? What leads all of these big tech companies to say, yes, we should just roll our tanks up onto the lawn of these longtime video game players and just <laughs> take over? Now, Microsoft has arguably done that, but they've paid the price in $68 billion of cash they're offering for Activision. Right. Specifically on Facebook, like, I, you know, we have to impact that a little bit because everybody's strategy is a bit different on this. But Facebook is really trying to regain control over mm -hmm. its own destiny. They are completely beholden upon Google and Apple for their platforms to continue their advertising juggernaut. And, and, the, and the rug was literally pulled from under them. Apple is continuing to work on the best interest of Apple, of selling as many phones as possible. They are building this ecosystem to do that. And their marketing strategy is privacy. But the privacy actions of, of Apple, which are draconian, have basically destroyed the user acquisition market and also gone directly against Facebook. And so they absolutely have no control over their own platform. And so that's why they're building the VR. They think that they can control that platform. They want to become the Apple and Google of virtual reality. Facebook is just trying to regain control to maintain control over their own destiny. And that's their strategy. And it makes sense from that perspective, but I think what, what they fail to do is acknowledge the fact that the interactive industry is a very different industry. People that play Candy Crush and people that play Call of Duty are completely different audiences. To build something for both with one system is, is near to impossible, and no one has been able to do that, really. And if, if we take that to one level beyond, when you think about there have been 10 million Oculus devices sold, and finally, years after VR began, we can say that at least half of those might actually be used regularly and the other half are probably people bought them and left them there and they're, they're, that's up against a, a, a billion smartphones sold every year or more. How does a technology like VR where you have to shut yourself off from the outside world and from your normal be patterns of behavior, how does that ever go mass market? Do you think it goes at mass market? The ironic truth is that VR already died. It came out, it was a disaster. <laughs> 
of epic proportion, right? No one bought it. No one cared. The only counter argument to that, and I will just throw it out there and see if you react to it, is that we know I, I was there. I was covering HTC last decade and watched when their smartphone business imploded and they were wiped out by the Samsungs of the world and later the Chinese, and they had to pivot to VR. And the technology was so crude and immature that, of course, it wasn't going to work. But the only counterargument to that is that if you spin forward three or four generations of technology, yes, our eyes see in 20K and we're just moving from 4K to 8K. Yes, we can get better, lighter weight headsets, that we can create experiences which are closer to real reality in the virtual world that make them more palatable. Do you just think we'll never get there? Or do you think that that is possible for a small subsegment of the market that you'll get experiences which are good enough to entice people into this, putting these bizarre headsets on? The only assumption I would challenge is I think actually the technology was not that bad. The technology was good. It freaking worked, right? It, it works then as well as it, almost as well as it works now. It's just a little bit different form factor. It's a little bit lighter. Having said that, the answer to your question is no. I think the consumption of VR experiences is something that is, is not palpable to many people for long periods of time. And that's not the way consumers engage in entertainment. Like if you're a console player, you could play for six hour sessions easily. And, and that's how you consume that content or mobile phones are like you're in, you're out. You know, it's like the appointment mechanic of what mobile does for billions of people. And frankly, how they interact in China is different the way they interact in North America. So like a VR experience in which you're immersed in absence of all other things in your life, like there's very, very, very limited use case for that scenario. It never made sense to begin with to some degree. We're just not there as a culture or as how we consume entertainment or look at watching TV. Like you'll sit in, the, in front of the TV for four hours, just engaging, leaning back, watching. That's the type of experience people are kind of like trying to replace and replicate how people consume. And VR is just not that. It's, it's a really high levels of engagement for a very, very brief period. I don't see it changing anytime soon, particularly with the current technology. Now, I am full on board with VR, right? I, dude, plug me in. 30 years from now, when I'm like 70 or 80, jack me in and let me live my life. So rather than walking around <laughs> like a zombie. But in terms of where we are for the next 20 years, I just don't think this is going to be a real compelling platform. My data points on Quest 2 have been positive in the sense that they sold a shit ton of Quest 2s, but engagement is not good. There's no content to play. No one is building content for this platform, period. End of sentence besides Facebook. That's not enough. You need all the publishers actively building and innovating and, and engaging and, and building social experiences and all that stuff. There's not enough attention on it because the install base is too small. The business model doesn't make sense. That's the other thing that I said way back when was that the business model for gaming is you pay $60, $70 for 100 hours of experience, right? You're not going to pay $70 for 30, 45 minute romp through something like Wonderland in VR, right? Yeah. Let me just make one wrap up point here, which is what's so interesting about what you're saying is there is a quasi religion of techno determinism. <laughs> you just gave me a blowback against the idea that, oh, don't worry, it'll work in the end. And that's been, that's been the thesis on VR that. The resolution wasn't good enough. The frame rate wasn't good enough. The content wasn't good enough. Eventually, we will all want to just dive into these pools of content 
where we can fully immerse ourselves. And I've always found that a bit disturbing because of the very simple point that when you put one of these things on, someone can walk up to you and punch you in the head and you'll never, never see it coming. <laughs> so there's a fairly limited number of places you can use that experience. There is this quasi-religion that says the technology will get better and it'll all work out. And that's what the tens of billions of dollars of R&D is going to solve right now. And you're effectively telling us, which is a really interesting counter argument, that no, it's not simply about just more spins of, of your semiconductor cycle or your optical technology or your display technology. This is just not the kind of content people want to engage with long term. Exactly. That's the point I've been making since Oculus started coming out. And I was one of the first ones on board to buy it. And I loved it. I, my experience was really positive. Kind of my superpower is understanding what the customer wants and how the customer has evolved over the last 25 years since, you know, in 98, when we were doing what PlayStation one, whatever, it's pretty clear, like what different platforms have enabled in the, in the interactive space, you know, mobile just created an absolutely massive growth in this industry, right? Because it catered to different types of audiences that weren't embracing interactive before. And that provided them the platform to engage in not the same experiences as what we saw on console, but on incremental experiences like social casino and puzzle and things like that, that catered to that audience and brought them on board to know that interactive is a better experience than passive forms of entertainment. VR does not solve any of these problems or it doesn't offer much incremental. And in some cases is detrimental to the way people consume content. So I think it's gonna be a big challenge to get consumers involved and engaged in this type of uh, experience over time. I like the, the incremental analysis you bring into the show. And I have to say, just we go to the break that uh, Facebook Meta in the room next door to me, eavesdropping on this podcast. I can tell you why, because if I look at their screens, they're actually looking at business development partnerships with care homes. So clearly they've taken your guidance. <laughs> of when people are in their wheelchair wetting their pants, there's going to be a VR experience to make them feel slightly drier. But with that, that wraps it up for part one. Let's come back to part two, where we'll get more into these use cases. Back in part two of the Bubble Trouble with 20-year veteran gaming platforms, Eric Kress. And Eric, we, you've kind of been a bit dismissive on the hype around the metaverse and perhaps uh, giving, giving the metaverse a cold shower. What I want to do in part two is go down the rabbit hole and one, one lesson I've learned from the previous shows. Ernest Lee from Amaze VR made a point. He said that Walmart is using VR for staff training. And then he expanded it and said there's healthcare professionals using VR for training in a very critical role of healthcare. And a few things just to kind of muse on here with you, which is if there's staff training, at, if you know that tomorrow there's staff training at your employer's place of work, the first thing you do is get really smashed tonight because you want to go in with a stinking hangover and pay no attention to it. But in healthcare, if you need to learn there's a cardiac arrest and here's how we resolve it when there's a power cut, you need to learn procedures and protocols. You need to pay attention. And what VR does is it prices in attention. What price your undivided attention is what VR, for me, brings to the game. Now, to learn that healthcare, Walmart, people like these are experimenting with VR for that purpose. Let's forget what we discussed about gaming in part one. But for that purpose, do you see that affecting the adoption curve in any way? Like it could happen through the back door? The idea of a backdoor corporate training type 
access. So like once you experience VR in these capacity that you're going to go out and be a consumer of, of VR technology afterwards. I mean, the more people that try it, I think the more people that find it compelling, but the problems that I'm talking about are almost different from that calculus. One thing is trying it. One thing is it be engaging it on a regular basis to make it an active entertainment platform in your life. It's a narrow use case. For, certainly it's a narrow use case. And then even if I go out and buy the device because I'm so compelled by using it at my employer, still like the use cases doesn't make sense at home because it's just not a very compelling interactive experience compared to TV, movies, and, and traditional video games. So I don't think that's their backdoor into the consumer's home. I, I can't even think of an example of that ever working before. I'm sure there is out there. To be fair, there is one use case that has been at the forefront of all new technology adoption since, whether it's satellite TV, cable TV, the VCR, the internet, and indeed VR, and that's been porn. But it it doesn't tend to spin out to make things mainstream until there are many, many, many other use cases. And the, and the main use case for satellite or cable TV was that the cost of programming came down sufficiently that you could actually make hundreds of channels, but there was no broadcast space to put more than five or six of them over the air. And the, the, the same thing for right. the VCR, you were producing loads and loads of movies, but there was no way to get access to a movie after it had been in the theater until they figured out a way to replicate them in a portable way. But those use cases need to have a much broader application. And I guess what you're saying is the combination of here's what it's like to be on the mountain in Nepal. And by the way, here's what it's like to train as a surgeon. None of those are individually or collectively compelling enough to get us all to don these goggles for more than 20 <laughs> minutes at a time every few months. It's well said. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And what I've been trying to say for like the last wow. three years since it came out is that this is a niche device and these niche applications are not going to make it more mainstream. Okay, let me give you the one other rejoinder we get from the bulls, which is, oh, it's the kids. The kids are different. <laughs> because you remember 3D in cinemas? That was going to be a big thing. And the research showed, because I knew a company called Technicolor at the time, and I talked with the CEO about it, and it's one of the largest visual effects companies in the world. And the research showed that after an age of about 18 or 19, you didn't like things flying off the screen and into your face. You thought it was really cool when you were 8 or 12, when you had these CGI explosions and things would come hurtling towards you. But most people find that kind of disturbing. Is there something about retraining this generation of, of kids? Are they more adept or are they more accustomed to this type of technology? Or do you equally think that the lack of compelling content is going to turn them off as well? Yeah, I think they have much better experiences with what I would consider the metaverse of Fortnite or something like that. Or if you even if even Roblox, which I don't think is ever going to be a VR thing. A two a two D metaverse. Yeah. I think that they, they optimize against their experiences that are the most compelling to them. I I think I say this in the notes, it's like, look, Roblox has built a gajillion different types of battle royale games like Fortnite, right? You can go out there and play them. Very few people are pl actually playing those games. They're all still playing Fortnite because that is the most optimal experience for playing that style of game. The point is, is that consumers know what the best experience is for what they want to do. And I don't think like some ubiquitous virtual world is going to have the same 
quality of experience as the best of breed shooter like Call of Duty or Fortnite or RPGs, you know, like Elden Ring or whatever. And so particularly the Western audiences are very fickle, right? And they're used to AAA experiences. And, and again, that's why Roblox has failed so miserably in the older demographic because the experiences are terrible relative to others. You just can't build a collection of experiences that are going to be as compelling as the individual experiences that you can get. Eric, you, you mentioned Fortnite a few times, and I, I wanted to go back two years, and you mentioned you've been tracking this space for a while, but tell me, what was your impression of Travis Scott's performance in Fortnite? This is around about April 2020 as we went into lockdown. I, it was a great proof of concept, and actually Sony made investments in Epic in order to continue to showcase you know, their music icons in Fortnite and other experiences, probably within the Fortnite universe or the Epic universe going forward. I think it's a good marketing vehicle. And it gives them street cred. It, it gives them coverage on YouTube. It gives them coverage on every single channel out there, whether it's Twitch and et cetera. I think it's a super smart idea, but I think it's one channel of many. I don't think it will replace all channels. Well, I'm the student and you're the professor on this one, but I think it could be more than marketing. I got to work on the data science on the back end of that performance. Have a guess how much virtual merch sales he did in 48 hours after that performance. I'm going to release an exclusive to the show here. How much virtual merch? Not real merch with white vans and t-shirts at the back. Virtual merch. Like virtual like items in the game? Skins, yeah. Oh my God, I don't know. $23.6 million. Holy crap. And that's virtual. So what's the bottom line of that? It's $23.6 million. There was no marginal cost at all. The, the way I understand that, how that thing went down is that they, they didn't have the full viewership that they wanted because of technical limitations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people yeah. were watching it after the fact on other yeah. channels. I'm not exactly sure what the stats you're talking about, but I, I would imagine that it created an ecosystem of engagement that they've never seen before for some kind of release across all mm -hmm. channels, not just Fortnite. Again, I think it is one of many strategies for marketing, in this case, music, but I don't think it's a replacement at all. But it's crazy to think if 60 right. million people watch you virtually, what would be the overheads and driving trucks around America to get to a fraction of that figure? That's what I find fascinating. Well, but that's the yeah. internet in general, right? I mean, the engagement that you can get from a one YouTube video is far more than you'll ever get from a Super Bowl ad, right? So I want to shift a little bit. What is your take on the whole live streaming phenomenon? Because that has been essential to not just educating people about gameplay, but in a way, many of these live streamers are creating their own metaverse where they're interacting their audience all the time, that the audience feels as if they're participating by watching these highly adept gamers play. Do you think that is the, the sort of front end of the metaverse where we will be watching someone who's exceptional, but feel like we're participating in it? Or does it have to be something where every individual in the metaverse is an active agent? Actually, that's a really, really good illustration of what my point is generally about VR is that the majority of people are people that consume and not create or participate, right? And I think this is an example, these type of communities of people that surround these YouTube figures, and I've lived it every day with my 13 and 15 year old, like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to some degree, although I do the same thing with, with other types of more dorky things on the internet, I suppose. But these are the type of things that is a metaverse, right? A collection of people that are getting around content or other people and communicating and talking about it and, and socializing 
this is a metaverse to some degree in the eyes of this type of this demographic. And again, you could do this with all kinds of different things on the internet, you know, and any interest that you have, if it's like basket weaving or diving or whatever, you know, like you can find your communities in the internet. You do not have to be an agent. You could just be a consumer of it. That is super compelling ways of reaching those audiences as well. And the niche point is interesting too. Our producer, Eric Nurism, gave this fantastic speech about podcasts once where he said, it's just niches. They're all just niches. You know, Joe Rogan is a really big podcast, but it's a really big niche. That's what it is. Yeah. There's an awful lot more people who look at Joe Rogan and say, I ain't listening to that. That's the definition of a niche. It's not how big yeah. you are. It's how big the audience that doesn't want to engage with you is. I think what you're saying is it's going to be big, but it's still going to be niche. Yeah. And it goes back to the World of Warcraft's phenomenon. When I was at EA, we had we were looking at the MMO space. And I, and I think I remember saying back then, I go, there's just no way there are more than 2 million people in the U.S. that are going to pay $16 a month to play World of Warcraft or play an interactive MMO. There's a fixed audience to that. Now, I may have been wrong by a factor of two, but that became the truth, really, ultimately. It's like, there's only a certain amount of people that are going to interact with that metaverse, the World of Warcraft. Well, World of Warcraft is a definition of metaverse, by the way. Everybody's interacting, as, as you were describing, and they're going around a virtual world with guilds and groups and communicating, and there's an internet phenomenon, there's YouTube, there's everything about the metaverse is kind of embraced in one game, right? And, and I'm a huge WoW fan. So you said 2 million was your estimate, your pitch in the addressable market. And I'm looking at that number and I count six zeros. How many zeros were in the McKinsey estimates and the Goldman Sachs estimates back in those days? <laughs> exactly. And that's one niche, right? That's one niche that caps out at a certain amount. And, and, and this is my point I really wanted to make on this podcast is like, you know how long and how much money it's taken to build World of Warcraft? It's been almost 20 years. Billions have been spent on game development systems and content and years after years, expansion after expansion, I think they're their ninth or 10th expansion. It's like, and they still only cater in the West anyway, to like maybe 6 million, maybe 8 million, somewhere around that number, a very, very small amount. And they've minted money. Exactly how can a metaverse compete with that kind of wow. niche, you know, with that kind of compelling content? It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And also you forget that the of the top 100 watched TV programs in America last year, two-thirds of them were NFL football games. So for all <laughs> the other compelling content that gets created, to, if you want to get a mass audience, it's still, two-thirds of it is still watching the NFL. Now, Eric, we need to move to our final signature session of Bubble Trouble when we ask our guests to do a little smoking with us. And I know you're living in San Francisco. You probably get passive secondhand smoke literally bleeding out your window at any given hour of the day. But these are these uh-oh moments when you sort of step back from the hype and hysteria of bubble trouble and you overhear terminology or metaphors or something that just makes you cringe. Give us a couple smoke signals with all this metaverse hype that obviously has reached a fever pitch last uh, last autumn when, with Facebook and, and has carried on with McKinsey saying it's going to be $6 trillion or what have you. What are the couple of things that you hear that just say, oh, they're smoking something or we should really watch out? You know, at the end of the day, any mention of Ready Player One, Snow Crash, or The Matrix, anytime that's mentioned in any type of press release about any type of technology, I'm just like, okay, you guys are out to lunch, right? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. 
I read Snowcraft in college. You know, Matrix is literally top 10 for me. I'm all in. And as I said, when I get older, just jack my ass in. Right? No problem. I'm, I'm in already. Right. But, but you also realize the reason why the Matrix has this appeal to all these tech bros is because they all want to look like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah, and be an expert in karate and jump off buildings. But I, I just think we are, we are so far from there and the consumer is so far from there. Like if you spent any time in the interactive industry, you know that every customer is different. You know, building a Ready Player One platform that is experiences for everybody is fucking impossible. There are always going to be better experiences outside of the metaverse that are more compelling because that's the way things are built. You know, you're seeing this with Roblox right now. You see this with like the Battle Royale, like on the Roblox, like I said before. And you can make the same argument about Social Casino and Puzzle. Like imagine for a moment your 60-year-old mom is playing puzzle games on their iPhone. Do you think they are going to put the phone down, jack into the metaverse and start playing a puzzle game <laughs> in the metaverse? No, it's ridiculous. This chair is getting a lot colder now. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense, you know? And so I, yeah, at the end of, sorry, at the end of the day, I think a lot of these pundits, whatever they're doing, they just ignore the customer altogether. Use the build it and they will come idea, which you I think you kind of mentioned before. And I, I just, it doesn't make any sense. There will be metaverses, right? But it'll cater and it'll be niche and there'll be better niches and it'll maybe appeal to a broader audience. I'm all for that. Grow, expand the market as fat long as possible. It's great for me. It's great for interactive in general. I'm not saying they, they won't create really cool experiences that will attract audiences. What I'm saying is building something for everyone is impossible in this world. And a second, a second smoke signal that just makes you absolutely cringe with anguish. Anytime, anytime McKenzie writes anything about entertainment or interactive or anything like that, they're really good at operations and things like that, but they're not gaming people, you know, and they've been basically destroying studios for the last decade, you know, with Blizzard and others, all these McKenzie people being drop shipped at studios and trying to manage them like a business class, as opposed to the creative enterprise that it is, it just ends up destroying things. And so. But in this case, they're just creating lofty expectations that will never be attainable. So it's going to feel like a failure. And it goes back to the Facebook thing. I talked to the Facebook guys before VR launched and their expectation on what that thing would do was reasonable. There was like literally 5 million PCs in the planet that could run that thing effectively, right? And I'm exaggerating a little bit. It was a small percentage that they, if they captured like 20% of those people, they would be happy. It was like a 2 million unit thing. But then you had guys like IDC and, and, and New Zoo and others that were expecting like 30 million install base in three years. That's the one thing that drives me insane. Stop making these forecasts. And if you do make these forecasts, just acknowledge the fact that it could be a disaster scenario in which nothing, nothing happens like what happened with VR to begin with. I know why they do it. They need to be more appropriate in their expectations or create scenarios that are more reasonable and, you know, best case worst case type thing or something, because I think they set expectation and it's impossible to succeed based upon the expectations. So never expect a man to understand something when his job depends on not understanding it. <laughs> so all those guys who are trying to sell reports, they know selling something that isn't a hockey stick curve or is the other side of the hockey stick curve that collapses, doesn't sell reports. If you hop on the buzzword bandwagon and put out an outrageous number like a food delivery company having a total addressable market of all the food ever consumed in America. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
you know, it sells a lot more reports than just giving a modest prediction that it's going to take a long time to develop. And over to Will to wrap it up. Yeah, well, I think uh, you mentioned conflict of interest in, in that McKinsey type world. I think the teacher actually says no conflict, no interest. <laughs> so <laughs> your, your, your eloquent rant, Eric, has just reminded me of just speaking to a longtime friend of mine who books some of the biggest festivals in Britain and across Europe. So he's putting out festival tickets, which would be like half a million people uh, this summer. Talent budgets were around about 1.2 billion million per show. I just asked him, like, does this metaverse frighten you that people are going to stop going to Reading and Leeds and start putting on headsets? And the expression he gave me, if an expression could say a thousand words, was just like, wake up, Will. (laughs) (laughs) I can double my prices and still sell out this festival before I announce people want to be together. They want to be in a muddy field, drinking, potentially smoking, potentially pilling, up to yourselves, each to their own, but they want human interaction. That's mainstream. Every summer, Britain goes to festivals. America goes to festivals. The world goes to festivals. Every summer, in 20, 30, 40 years' time, when we're all in care homes, wetting our pants, we will not be wearing headsets. We'll still be going to festivals. And I think that's, that's what you made me... That's the point you've hammered home for me. Big, but niche. Let's underline the word niche. It's a niche thing. Eric, this has been an absolute hoot. I'd love to have you on. We'd love to help your podcast out too. But thanks so much for bringing 20 years of experience to Bubble Trouble. Yeah, thanks it. for having me. It's been great. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. <laughs>